Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Flying Off the Handle. I'm always staggered by what happens after some team loses a championship, and then their fans go to the streets, tipping over cars, pulling over lampposts, and lighting couches on fire. We humans, it would seem, are always on the verge of losing our cool. This is certainly not Christian behavior, so then how can a Christian remain steady and calm in the midst of such a frustrating world? The secret is found in a man upon a tree. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Flying off the handle. It's a statement that is an Americanism. That's where it came from, supposedly. However, you're going to recognize as I teach this that it seems to fit with a Hebrew concept rather well. And so... I think it captures it. Leslie's actually the one that proposed the title. And I think it's a really good title. Wait till you hear this. This is a, just a fascinating study. And for those of you that have the notes, do not peek. Because some of you are already peeking, and that's just not allowed in this one. <laughs> Flying off the handle. To fly off the handle means to lose self-control. To lose one's temper. To lose control of one's self. This is not a healthy thing. A lot of us have grown up around parents that flew off the handle. And as a result, we've learned and sort of modeled an understanding of how life works. That yes, in a general sense, if you flew off the handle in every minute, life couldn't function properly. But there are certain circumstances in life where it's perfectly fine to fly off the handle. I'm going to make a presentation today that would say there is never a situation in all of life where you should lose self-control or where you should lose one's temper. In the different translations of scripture, self-control is one of the words oftentimes used as a fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's an attribute and an evidence that God has moved in. When God moves in, there is something known as self-control. Another word for it in different translations would be temperance. It's a temperance. It is a solving of temper. So that the temper of a man, the temper of self, does not have the ability to control the man. But the man is controlled by something higher, known as the Spirit of God. That is why it's called a fruit of the Spirit. The man is tempered, and now God is able to flow through him without the obstruction of self rising up in the moments that are most critical, by the way, in which the Spirit of God needs to be expressed. When you are falsely accused, when you're scourged and you're beaten, when you're given a guilty man's cross to carry to Calvary, when is a good time to fly off the handle? Right then. And if you're the God of the universe and you fly off the handle for a living, guess what? You're going to blast a few people through the breath of your nostrils and you're going to make sure that everyone knows that you're God. However, God himself bore this, didn't even open his mouth. We could learn something from our Savior. And so as we walk through this, we're going to talk about the concept. I'm not going to just be referring to flying off the handle, but I I do want to give the background of flying off the handle. Origin. This is an American phrase, and it alludes to the uncontrolled way a loose axe head flies off from its handle. So the concept is... They'd have these really, 
I don't know how you describe it. They weren't professionally manufactured axe heads. They're carved, and you stick on an axe head, and you're, you're hacking away at something, and the axe head goes flying. Well, guess who that's dangerous for? Everyone around you. And so it's a sign of danger. It's a sign of something being out of control. And when an axe head is flying through the air, by the way, especially a sharpened one, that's very dangerous. And that's actually the concept of losing one's self-control. When control is lost... It's dangerous to everyone around. So my appeal, because here we are talking to Christians this morning. If anyone should have self-control, it would be us. However, if I'm going to do an inventory and an account of where the church of Jesus Christ is at today, I would say we are greatly struggling in revealing this aspect of Jesus Christ. And if you are not demonstrating self-control, you're not demonstrating the fruit, the basic fruit that is shown in a Christian life when God has moved in and taken the helm. We do not mess with flying off the handle. It is dangerous to our life, to our marriage, to our families, to our ministries, to the world around us. This stops. We do not accept this in the church of Jesus Christ. We do not give a free pass to men who behave in this erratic fashion or abusive to their wives because they had a bad day. We do not accept this in the wives and in flying off the handle towards their husbands or to their children or to their friends with a loose lip and gossip and say, I've had enough of this, and they spew. We do not give a free pass to this in the church of Jesus Christ. There is meant to be a restraint of the Spirit upon our lives. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Our lips will do the service of Jesus Christ and not the lips of our own passions. When axe heads go flying. So do you know that there was an axe head that went flying in the Old Testament? I've given a sermon on this one story from like three different angles. This is my third angle, I think, on it. But there is a story in the Old Testament. It's a really interesting and odd story because it doesn't seem to have any place in the context of Scripture. What happens before it and what happens after it are these magnificent and majestic testimonies to God's power and might. And then in the midst of it, there's this little story about Elisha, and he's getting together with a group of prophets, and they're building a prophet's house. This is all we know. And it's down by the River Jordan. We don't know why they're really building it. We don't know why this is included in Scripture, but it is. Amidst all the mighty things that God does in the Bible, this little story is included. And so, all we know is that some guy, we don't even know his name, has borrowed an axe, and he's chopping wood. And while he's chopping wood, bloop, the axe head goes flying off and lands in the Jordan River. And there's more to the story, but it's not that big of a deal. It is such a small little story, and yet God seems to hallmark it, highlight it, and say, hey guys, I don't want you to miss this. And almost every single one of us in here misses it. So I've had three different sermons to sort of go, focus in. It's like, God means something here. Let's figure out what it is. So when axe heads go flying, a prophet and a little wood are needed. Did you catch that? When axe heads go flying, a prophet, Jesus, and a little wood, the cross, are needed. Okay, I just gave you a massive hint. Second Kings, here's our story. So he, Elisha, went with them, 
And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. It's an obscure little story. And that's all we know. And don't you just have a desire to get into the scene and say, whoa, 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 I think we accidentally included this in Scripture. Okay, first of all, buddy, we don't care about your borrowed accent. It's lost. Just go save up some money and buy him a new one. But it's a last master. See, if you knew what was coming, the next scene in the, when the Syrian army is marching against Elisha and he's surrounded by a whole army, and God opens the eyes of the servant to see a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around, and Elisha, with one word, blinds an entire army, it's a little more important sounding. This doesn't seem very important. It's a borrowed accent, and it didn't hurt anyone. It just landed in the Jordan River. Just let it be. You could fly off the handle, and we could say it's not that big of a deal. Hmm, got you on that one. You see, that's what we've been doing in the church. We've been diminishing the loss of self-control, the erratic behavior, the extreme rage that sometimes is allowed in. And we say, look, everyone has that at times. If you knew what I was going through, you'd understand. As the church of Jesus Christ, we should say, I do know what you're going through, but I know what the scriptures say. And I know the provision that was made by the prophet and that would. You see, something has been made to cause that which is lost, the axe head. The axe head which went flying off to return. Reach in and pick it up for yourself, says God. Reach in. Get that temper back. And you say, I can't. I can't make iron float. He says, I made it float. Reach in, pick it up, stick it back on the stick. I have made provision for you to actually return that axe head to its proper place so that you can do the work of building the house of God. A church without self-control, here's my little byline for it, is a church vulnerable to faction, division, and contention. People speak too quickly. They say things that they shouldn't say. They have an itch to express themselves, and they speak rashly. It's called impetuosity. It's one of the number one signs of youthfulness, is that you speak too quickly. Unfortunately, I do not know that we have grown up in the church, because even the elder members oftentimes will speak too quickly. They do not measure their words. A Christian without self-control is the devil's tool of choice for invading and destroying the church. A husband without self-control is often perverted, angry, domineering, and violent. If you lack self-control, that means in those moments when you're weakest, what are you going to give way to? All your vices. You see, as a man, you could be a godly man, you could esteem godly things, and you could turn away from pornography for a week, but then you have a bad day. You see, a man without self-control is often perverted. And the reason I'm going to say often is because everyone struggles in different areas with their self-control. I do not want to just tag men with certain behaviors and women with other behaviors, because sometimes... They mix. So I'm using the word often not because I'm trying to diminish the fact that if you do not have self-control, there isn't something. It just may not be this exact list. A husband without self-control is often perverted, angry, domineering, 
and violence. A wife without self-control is often lacking discretion, gossiping, slandering, manipulative, and nagging. The men in here are like, yeah. (laughs) Uh, However, the women in here, when we do the first one, are like, "Uh uh-huh. You see, this is dangerous stuff. And if it's not dealt with at the cross, it will destroy a marriage. It will destroy a family. It will destroy a church. The way you can tell if a church is healthy is by measuring its individual members and their self-control. If they know how to control their tongue, then the words that are going to be spoken in the church are going to be spirit words. Words that build. Words that edify. Words that strengthen. They're not going to be words that divide. Words that slander. Words that injure. What have we become as the church of Jesus Christ? We've lost control of the axe head. And it is flying about in the church and it is doing damage. A father without self-control is often harsh, overreactive, enraged, and abusive. A mother without self-control is often unstable, meddling, overprotective, and indiscreet with her children's secrets. A man without self-control is often a sexually polluted, rage-filled mess. A woman without self-control is often a loose-tongued, meddling, manipulative mess. Dear Lord Jesus, save us from such a mess. Alas, Master, the famous quote of the prophet who lost his axe head. And this is our quote right now. Alas, Master, our axe head has flown off the handle. I think we've lost something. We've lost something and it's landed in the Jordan and we cannot retrieve it in our own strength. You ever tried to produce self-control on your own? See, we have a misunderstanding of what self-control is. You know what it sounds like to us? It sounds like we control ourselves, And actually, that's the great misnomer, which is why temperance is oftentimes a better word. However, I'm going to walk you through this, and I'm going to show you that it's not completely wrong. We are supposed to control ourselves, but we can't control ourselves without help. We need a prophet, and we need a stick. We need a prophet, and we need a cross. We need Jesus, and we need his work at Calvary. Without it, you cannot control yourself. But with it, he says to you, I've made it float, pick it up. And you must rise up in agreement with the purchase of the cross and apply that accent back to the stick. It's supernatural. But you participate in this work of the Spirit. And if you do not, that accent will remain floating, but you will not pick it up and apply it. It's floating. That which is impossible has happened. And it is available for each of us as the saints of God. But we must recognize that it's there. We must not excuse ourselves from trying to do the work of God by flinging axe heads and by trying to hit wood and cut wood with a stick. It doesn't work that way. We need the gift of God that he's given us. Alas, Master, our axe head is flown off the handle. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. If you do not have rule over your spirit, then you are like a city that is broken down and without walls. Now, if any of you have gone through Ellerslie, you know the principle of fortification, Nehemiah. If you do not have walls around your city, the enemy can do whatever he wants. The great threat to the enemy is when you begin to build a wall, and you begin to fortify against what the enemy wants. You see, A city that is broken down and without walls is vulnerable to the enemy. Whatever the enemy wants to do, he can get away with. 
All he has to do is tickle your nose a little and you sneeze. You see, he has access unto your life. And you can say, well, but I can't rule my own spirit. You need a prophet and you need the cross. And with those things, you will actually be prepared to do something that otherwise you couldn't. And that is rule your own spirit. The tongue. The sign of occupied territory. This can get a little awkward, especially for those of you that are not in Pentecostal leanings when you start talking about occupied territory, even bringing up the word tongue. If I added an S to the end, tongues. It's like, oh, ah. But there's a symbol here. The tongue is the littlest member, as it says in James, and it is set on fire by the fires of hell. However, that is the signal of a life that is unoccupied, a life that is ruled by self and has no rule over its spirit. The tongue is the symbol of it. And that tongue is set on fire by the fires of hell. And therefore, that which is coming out of this life is called brackish or bitter waters. And that is the symbol of an unredeemed, unregenerated life. If what is coming out of this mouth is not life-giving, it's not sweet waters, it's not life-giving waters, then something's wrong with the entire body. The littlest member is giving away the actual state of affairs in this body. And so therefore, you can say all the right things, but you must measure a man based on his tongue. It's a sign of occupied territory. So when God gets a hold of a man, what does he do? He grabs the tongue. He takes the tongue, and he makes a statement. He sets it on fire with the fires of heaven. And as a result, what comes out of this man or this woman are words of life and words of truth, words that speak of the glory of God, that edify and strengthen And that's the sign that God is occupying this man or this woman. Even so, the tongue is a little member. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and it sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. No man can tame the tongue. No man can make an axe head float. No man can rule his own spirit. Every man is like a broken down wall. And a city that is left defenseless. Every single one of us has a tongue that is set on fire by the fires of hell. Some of us know how to cover it up a little better than others. But every single one of us are vulnerable to those points of weakness where out will come acid. Out will come brackish waters. We're all susceptible. We're all vulnerable. Because no man can tame the tongue. Except one. There is one man who lived this life. And in his mouth was found no guile, no bitterness, no brackish waters were in there. He actually had a tamed tongue. And he lived the way we ought to live. It's called perfect righteousness. But it's a righteousness that we can't mimic, we can't imitate. He did it. And he lived in such a way that created an avenue for iron to float. He says, I have made it float for you. I have tamed the tongue. I, says Jesus, have tamed the tongue. But you must come to me for that tongue to be tamed. And so what do you see in Acts 2? Please don't get weirded out by the fact that this is in the Bible. It just is. Okay, don't try and hide in corners and skip over things in the Bible. This is a statement of tongues being grabbed by Almighty God. God grabbed the tongues of 120 men and women in an upper room. And he said, mine. These belong to me. And the first symbol of occupied territory was that he grabbed a tongue. 
And then those tongues went out and preached the gospel. And those tongues proclaimed Peter, who with that same tongue 50 days earlier denied Christ three times. Same tongue. Now the tongue is grabbed by God. He goes out and in front of a multitude, the same city in which his, his God was crucified, same place, he stands in Jerusalem before them all with a tongue that is now controlled by the Spirit of God and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 came into the church that day, and that's just counting the men. Whoa! This is what happens when the Spirit of God gains access to his men and women. He grabs the tongue. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and as it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Who's uttering? It's the Spirit. And the Spirit is taking their tongues and is wielding them. Like I said, don't get weird about this. I'm saying this is just the word of God on the matter. When God came in and took control of men and women's bodies, what did he do? He first symbolized it in and through the tongue. So what is he going to do in our life? He is going to symbolize his control in and through a changed tongue. Testing the man by his tongue. If you wonder what sort of a man he is, just listen. His tongue will ultimately betray what lineage, of what lineage he descends. Whether he be of the lineage of Adam or whether he be of the new birth and of the descent of Christ will be revealed in and through his words spoken. Just listen. Just hang out with someone. If you ever want a great test for if you should marry someone, just listen. Just open up your ears and you'll understand, are they of the lineage of Adam still? Or have they been born anew? Because for someone to be born anew, their tongue changes. It speaks different. It speaks life. It speaks love. It speaks purity. It speaks that which the Spirit of God would speak. And you could say, always? You probably know the answer to that. We have, we're in the midst of hostile territory, and the enemy wants to try and grab back that tongue with every single fiber of his being. And he tempts and he tries us constantly to get that end. But the man or the woman of God who is groomed by the Spirit and has the evidence of God within them will, as a natural course, show a constancy of returning back and forth. And if they did speak something, what would they do with that same tongue? They would repent. They would confess that, and they would make it right to everyone that heard that. That was wrong, because the Spirit of God is dwelling in them. So with that same tongue, even if they did make a mistake in their unfinished state, they would make it clear that that was incorrect with that same tongue. They would not justify it with that tongue. By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. You know that words matter to God? I mean, this is going to get very uncomfortable here where I'm going scripturally. But it gets very uncomfortable. When you begin to realize that your words are actually the test. I'm not just saying, you should listen. What do you think God's doing? He's listening. He's saying, by these words, you will be justified or you will be condemned. That's Jesus talking, by the way. Your words are being measured. They are being held. They are being kept. They are being monitored. Your words are stating what's inside of you. That's why a confession of sin and a confession of faith are so valuable. Because they are demonstrating a changed program here. You are no longer an old man under old management. You are a new man under new management. Prove it. You confess with your mouth 
This behavior that I've had was sin. It is wrong. It is against God. And I agree with God. And then you confess your position. I'm in Christ Jesus. My salvation comes in him. His death is my death. And when he was crucified, my old man was crucified. His burial was my burial. And when he was buried, so was my old life. And it is no longer seen. It is put out of view. And now when he was resurrected, I am resurrected because I'm in Christ Jesus. And his life is my life. And it's eternal and everlasting. And when he rose again, when he ascended to be with the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father, I am seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. And all things are under his feet. Therefore, all things are under my feet, including my spirit. And my spirit will not rule this body. But I, in the authority of Jesus Christ, will say, down, spirit. You will come into agreement with God's agenda. Down, body. You will not have any craving that will violate the purposes of why God created you. You are subject, and that is called self-being controlled. You are no longer an axe head flying around at the whim and the emotion and the passion of life. The circumstances go sour and you fall apart. Oh no. There is a restraint and there's a temperance to your existence because you are held in the hollow of God's hand. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, another way of saying that is controls not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. It's false. It's empty. Say all you want. You could seem to be religious, but you prove a man with his tongue. If his tongue is not bridled, what he has is false. It's okay to gulp at that. It's just plain spoken truth. We do not want to be vain, empty, hollow, false. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, I need that axe head back on the stick. I need that axe head to be where it's supposed to be. He's made it float, but do you know that he's made it float for you? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. In other words, if you misuse this, You're bringing death. What's God's agenda on this earth? It says the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And then Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and that more abundant. Whose agenda are you sponsoring? When you allow this tongue to be controlled by the fires of hell, you're bringing death to this earth when Jesus came to bring life. When you allow this tongue to be captured by the living God, then what you are doing is you're coming into agreement with his agenda and you speak life in every situation. James 3. So this is the whole chapter of James 3. One of the themes of the book of James, you could say, is the tongue. It's sort of a strange theme to have for a book, but James 3 is like the chapter in the Bible on the tongue. It is like the resource. You want to know about the tongue? If you don't go to James 3, you're missing out, because that's like the whole encyclopedia for it. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Speaking of Jesus. If any man does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Did you know that if you are perfect in word and if your tongue is controlled, did you know that your whole body comes with it? When your tongue is out of control, you know the whole body is out of control? The first thing God will go after is the tongue. And then when he gains the tongue, the whole body begins to come into alignment. If anyone, and I'm reading this again, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we may turn, and we turn their whole body. 
Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. Listen to this line. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The very last part of this chapter, which is on the tongue, is talking about wisdom. It seems strange, like it doesn't fit in. But what it's saying is there's two forms of wisdom. There's a wisdom that descends from the deep, from the lower regions, from the flesh. And it can sound good, but it exhibits itself in certain behavior. It says, but if there's bitter envy and self-seeking, do not boast and lie against the truth. See, this wisdom does not descend from above. It's actually saying that is not coming from the Spirit of God. So someone could speak, but if they're speaking in a manner that boasts something that's earthly, sensual, and demonic because it's self-seeking and full of bitter envy. You see, you can measure someone by their tongue. And you could say, it sounds true, but it's not coming from above. That's actually coming from the lower regions. You can test someone by their words. And in the same context, James is saying, if someone can look religious on the outside, but if their tongue is not in agreement with God, the wisdom is not coming from above, this is a vain religion. This is an empty, a hollow man. So be watchful. And then he he contrasts that. It says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Pure words come out of the man or the woman of God. We can't speak anything else. It's a pure, fresh water spring. It's called the Spirit of God. How could you not have pure words? And so first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. This is how you test a tongue. You can measure a tongue against the word of God. We could call it in our uh, environment, canon testing the words of a man. Not just the words of scripture, but then canon test the words of a man against scripture. Are they matching? Because in the book of James it says, here's the tongue. This is one dangerous thing. But you can test if that tongue is speaking wisdom. Where is it getting its life source? Is it coming from hell or is it coming from heaven? Measure it. Measure it in our individual lives as well. Every word matters. So this is a heavy-duty scripture. I'm just going to read it, and may God give us grace to fully absorb this. 
Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every single word. But for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's the context for that line that Jesus gave. Every word is being measured. And we will be held accountable for every word. Well, not just words, actions. You see, out of the heart is this mouth speaking. It's out of the inner man. What sort of man or woman are you? Are you redeemed? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been given the life of God? Because if so, it is proven through your words. And you can test someone. Just listen. Hmm. That's a new life. How will you know his disciples? By their love. There's an evidence. There's a fruit that is born. And this is what Jesus is saying. There's a good tree and there's a bad tree. Look at the fruit. The fruit will testify of if it's a good or a bad tree. You know your tree and you know your fruit better than anyone on earth. You give a quick assessment of where you're at. You can say all day long you love Jesus. But you may not have ever put that axe head on the stick. You may believe that it floated. Pick it up for yourself and stick it there. You must reckon. You must take the truth. That cross is for you. Don't just esteem it and go, yeah, God makes axe heads float. Sure, I believe it. It's in the book of Kings. But have, has it floated for you? Have you reached in and taken that which the prophet with that wood accomplished? So not just every word matters, every action matters. The McEnroe generation, extreme reactions to small discrepancies. You have to have a little age behind you to fully understand this illustration. John McEnroe, he's the famous picture of young brashness and impetuosity. Talk about flying off the handle. John McEnroe, one of the greatest tennis players actually in U.S. history, had such a rage and such a lack of control over himself, if anything. I mean, the ball could land on the line, and there's a judge to discern if it was in or out. And if that judge says it was in when he thought it was out, he would literally fly off the handle. And there was one time, for instance, that he actually you know, threw his racket down and made this huge scene and then picked his racket back up, got up to serve and went back like this and his racket <laughs> fell in two and he missed the ball. Uh, that's a great moment. Uh, and then he got mad about that. He went, had them check the rule book of if that was an actual swing. It's like, buddy, you created the problem. You dug the hole, now get in it. But we've grown up around this. And do you know that even though I was growing up, I never heard anyone truly criticize. I, had, I heard people make fun of John McEnroe for doing this. But ever to say, you know, that this is not the behavior that we are ever supposed to purvey. You see, he's special. He, he's a great tennis player, and he's in the midst of extreme stress and anxiety. That's just the way some people respond to it. You have to give him grace. Look how good he is at tennis. Oh, we do not give a free pass for this. 
This is devastating to a generation that was raised on this. And now when they blow their stack and fly off the handle, they go, I'm just doing what John McEnroe did. Extreme reactions to small discrepancies. You see, this isn't big stuff. These are small things. And you can measure your own life. There are little things in your life. You may be fine in public. Like right now, I don't see anyone flying off the handle. Because you're doing really good. Well done. (laughs) However, you have to follow someone around in life. And throughout a day, just one day, you could measure yourself and just say, God, begin to show me my fruit. What am I bearing? Am I giving fresh water or salt water, brackish water? Just measure every word. And if you really have guts, you could ask the people around you to measure you for a day. Ah, but you can play good in, on a campus like this. You know, your roommates are starting to begin to see, you know, some of those brackish waters maybe every now and then. You're like, uh-oh. Your family, they know you really well. You ever thought of asking your mom to give you a uh, saltwater or freshwater test for a week? Mom, if you ever hear me speak with any brackish water, I want to know. If I have anything coming out of me that's not truly life-giving, please tell me. We oftentimes know before we even ask someone. And even as we're beginning to open our mouth to ask someone, we're like, you know, I don't think I want to do that. Because I think I would like God to search me a little and test me and get me truly to have that axe head in place again. Before I start asking people to, you know, say, do I, do I have an axe head on or is it floating still in the river? Don't ask that. Just get it. Stick it back on the stick. I, the reason this came up to me is I've been taking tennis lessons. I played tennis when I was young and my form got a little... Uh, it sort of fell apart, and I don't have great form, and so I'm going back and sort of relearning the form of tennis. And there's a certain behavior that I've always had in sports growing up. I am a perfectionist, and so if you remember my... Well, I think it's coming up here. I won't even mention it. Yeah, you guys are all looking at the notes. Uh, (laughs) But I'm a perfectionist, and I want everything to go just right. And so I played soccer... And as a soccer player, if I ever made a pass that was a little off, wasn't perfect, I would mutter out of my mouth. And usually it's like, come on, come on, or what in the world? That's my famous statement throughout my life. What in the world? You know, I have an open shot on the goal. In fact, my whole college team used to call it a looty for a while. Open shot, breakaway, boom, it goes over the goalpost. Oh, no, I have to turn around and face my teammates after that? And so what is going on in me? Oh, what in the world? I am so frustrated with myself. And I can say, well, it's just with me. I'm not mad at you. But there's a frustration. It's a lack of control. And what's interesting is I haven't played sports for quite some time. Ever since Hudson's been born, which is about eight years, there's sort of been a fast from sports. It's mainly just so, it's like I had to make a choice. I'm either with my children and with my wife, or I'm out playing sports. And so it's been a, a pulling back. And so I start playing tennis, and I'm just practicing. It's not that the ball machine's coming, and, and I whiff it. I had this one that was flying way out. And I, what in the world? <laughs> I immediately default back to my, oh, it's like I'm conditioned to say that. I get, immediately get frustrated and got to touch this. Almost instantaneous, like, what, what was that? It's just, this is how you play tennis, God, okay? <laughs> I mean, if you were down here, I don't think they had tennis back in the day when you were here. This is just what you say. It's how you rev yourself up. That's how you make the, bat- the next shot better. Uh, 
And so I've literally said, God, touch this. When I whiff a ball, like bowling, you ever had it where it goes straight into the gutter or something like that? It's like humiliating, especially when everyone's around you. And so just to turn around and accept it, oh, you can't do that. You have to make a statement somehow. It's like, oh, come on. Or, oh, yeah, someone bumped me. Or there was a wind that gusted through here. <laughs> we as guys are very creative. Uh, to... But it's extreme reactions to small discrepancies. And God's been showing me the small things matter. When no one's looking. I'm on the court all by myself with a ball machine. And even a, come on. Mm-mm. I want there to be a restraint in my soul where every word that comes out of my mouth is a life-giving word. And if there was someone with a little hidden microphone, because you know, I've wondered at times if people stick hidden microphones on me. But if there's a hidden microphone on my life and I'm playing tennis, that they're hearing the praises of God and they're, they're hearing truth professed even in how I whiff a hit. The piano medley. <laughs> I'm not going to go through the story. But in short, because this is, as we start out a semester at Ellerslie, I, I share my most embarrassing moment, which is this. And my mom wanted me to practice for this piano. It was, a, it was not a recital. It was like a talent show. And I was signed up for piano. And it was the song Amazing Grace and some other song. And I had a pattern back then of when I would get frustrated with myself and I wasn't getting something right where I'd bang on the piano. And it was all by myself in a side room in the house. It's not affecting anyone. It's like I could be hacking at a, a piece of wood with my own axe. The axe could go flying off. Like it doesn't hurt anyone to have my axe head go flying. I don't know why everyone's so big on keeping axe heads on the stick. It's not hurting anyone. It was hurting me. And it was setting up a pattern to hurt other people. You see, there is an onlooking crowd. The way I have chosen to live my life as if an entire generation is watching. And every moment needs to be measured and monitored. And if they were to see and peek in, because you'd never know when people are actually watching. If they could see in and watch, they would see a testimony of a changed life in every situation. So as the piano medley story goes, I don't want to give too much of it away because it is my most embarrassing moment in all of world history. It probably is the most embarrassing moment for any human. I think it's now your most embarrassing moment. (laughs) But I got up in front of this huge crowd. I hadn't practiced for two weeks, and that's a whole story in and of itself. And I got up there, and I could read music when it first started. And I started playing, do 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 And then I went, blink, and I hit a wrong note, and suddenly I, it was gibberish. I couldn't read. And I got, I started, do do bonky bonk. And guess what? What I had practiced in private, which was an axe flying off the handle, suddenly went public. And I banged on the piano at the age of, I don't know what I was. What did I say? I try and get myself as young as possible in the story. It's like 11 or so. I banged on the piano in front of this whole congregation. And it was the most embarrassing moment. We had to come to Ellerslie to hear all the details because it really is a funny story. But that which we're doing in private will go public. If you are training for excellence in private, like David taking on the lion and the bear, it will go public and you will defeat a, a Goliath in front of an entire generation. But if you're banging on pianos and throwing down rackets in private, guess what the world will see? In that moment when you least want them to be looking, your testimony will come forth. 
Seeing the lost axe head float. The return of self-control to the church. 2 Peter 1. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Have you ever thought about that? That you are meant by the promises of God, by the purchase of the cross, to partake of his nature, his behavior, the way he is. That you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. So what I did is I have a whole bunch of Greek words here, and I'm going to go through these, and I'm going to pick out one of them. But the Greek words, add to your faith, arite, and to arite nosis, and to nosis ekreteia, and to ekreteia hupomone, and to hupomone usebia, and to usebia Philadelphia, and to Philadelphia agape. For if these things be in you and abound... They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus. This is the fruit. This is that which comes forth out of a life that believes the promises, that comes to that prophet and allows the wood that he threw in to cause that accent to float to be fully gained. Add to your faith. He says, don't just believe it. Go in and grab the accent. You must add to your faith with all diligence. Have all of us gone to the River Jordan and gotten the accent? And if someone says, I didn't even know there was a... Well, now you know. Go get it. Add to your faith. And then add to that. And then add to that. And we're just talking about one thing today. But we as the church have believed, we prayed a prayer, and we haven't added to our faith. We haven't allowed the divine nature to begin to bear the fruit so that we're proving ourselves unfruitful instead of fruitful. But he that lacks these things is blind. That's what it says. He that lacks these fruits, which I know you're like, I can't read Greek. I don't even know what fruit that is. I'll go through it. But he that lacks these things is blind, and he cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. With all diligence, add to your faith. So here's our list. One, arite. It's typically translated as virtue. I'm going to call it the new man. Add to your faith the new man. It's virtue. It's the behavior of God. It's the way God is. Two, gnosis. We'll call this the new map, typically translated knowledge. And then add to this new man the new map. You live by a different criteria, a different uh, rule. It's the word of God. And so you have a new man. Now let that man come under the rulership of the word of God, the scriptures. And whatever it says, you will do. This is the new map. Number three, egreteia. This is typically translated self-control. This is the one we're going to uh, little camp, camp on and go through. But egretea, we'll call it the new strength. Number four, hupomone, the new endurance, typically translated as perseverance. Number five, usabia, typically translated godliness. We'll call that the new behavior. Number six, Philadelphia, typically translated brotherly love. It's the new affection. And then number seven, the new creature, agape, typically translated love. The prize fighter. I gave a message, I think it was a year and a half ago, called the prize fighter. And basically, what I'm going to give you is just a little illustration. And I really like this illustration. It really, and I, I grew up watching boxing. I know it's not probably the healthiest thing, but that's, I did. And to me, it was totally normal to see people belt each other in the nose and then get excited when they got a good blow in. Probably not the healthiest, most Christian activity. So if we had a ring, and say it's about the size of this stage... There's like a rope around this ring, so you can't just sneak away from the ring. You're in a ring. Let's call that ring our soul. Now, most of us in our soul, in this body, 
are completely abused and devastated by whatever the enemy wants to bring into this ring. So we're this little diddly squat small thing, okay? And, you know, I don't even know that we have gloves on, but we're sort of, you know, the funny form. We don't know how to box, and it's just embarrassing to even look at us. It's like, oh, no. And guess who steps in? Gets over the ring, and it's Goliath. And he steps in, whether it be lust, whether it be fear, whether it be pride, whether it be greed, whether it be gossip, whether it be uh, gluttony. It has all sorts of different forms. It steps into our ring, and what does it do? Just completely clobbers us day in and day out. And you could say, well, that's a lack of something. You are missing something. What is that something that you're missing? Because that isn't how the Christian life is supposed to function. I recognize that's how most Christians on planet Earth function. But that isn't how it's supposed to function. This ring is supposed to be ruled by King Jesus. And what happens in this ring is supposed to bring him glory. So what is wrong with our ring? What are we missing? Well, we're missing an accent. Our word is egreteia, the new strength, self-control. It's the strength of God made manifest in the saints in order to garrison the body. Shield it from every fiery dart of the enemy. It's a God-enabled governing of every operation of the body. A divinely empowered control over appetite, sleep, and sexuality. It's letting not sin reign any longer in the body. So we have this ring, and we're being defeated in this ring. And so who do we turn to? We turn to the prophets and his wood. And you know what happens in this ring? Something a lot bigger than Goliath steps over the ropes and goes, kaboom, kaboom. And he stands behind us. We're, we're way down here. And he's like, his name's Jehovah. His name's Jesus. And he's come to do business in our life. He's known as our savior. We could call him our champion. And so he takes our fist and he goes, and knocks Goliath square out of the ring. He does it. He really does it. You see, here's how self-control works. First, it is not you that gets rid of that junk in your ring. It's Jesus in you. He gives you a new strength to actually be able to do in your body what otherwise you couldn't do. He is actually the one that rids your life of its impurity, that rids your life of that control over you. And he sets this soul free. That doesn't always happen Overnight, there's a process. Oftentimes, he'll take care of one corner and say, let's get this corner. But what it has to do with is you're kicking out that which shouldn't be there in the first place. But there's more to egretea than just kicking out. And it's a hard word to know how to describe, and that's why self-control and temperance, I don't think, fully capture it for us. You see, it means to kick out, to remove with authority, But it also means something else which is of extreme importance, and that is to keep out. So imagine, most of us still have a whole bunch of junk and Goliaths hanging out in our ring. But what if we understood this and returned the axe head to its position? All of it must go. All of it, without exception. And then guess what? You have a clean ring. Well, the enemy, do you think he's going to give up on that ring? No, he's immediately trying to sneak, do, 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 to get to the back side of the ring when you're facing this way and try and sneak in. But God, in the concept of egretea, one of the fruits of the Spirit, it's known as temperance, but it's a hard word to describe. It involves kicking out, and it involves keeping out. And so you could be focused here on some battle, and the enemy's like, aha, uh-huh, got him distracted. 
The moment he touches, the moment the enemy touches the rope on the back side of the ring that you're not focused on, there's an inner alarm that goes off. Typically in Christian history, that is called temperance. If you get too hot, you get too cold, an alarm goes off in your soul. You don't know exactly what it is, but something's wrong. Something's not right over here. It's an inner alarm system that the Spirit of God has set inside of you. If you don't know it, you won't heed it. But when you remove everything, God intends to keep it removed. It's called a garrison around your ring. And if that enemy tries to get in, guess what? And what do you have? You have the authority and the control of this environment under the jurisdictional rule of Jesus Christ to literally knock back out anything that is trying to get in. And that's called egretea. The two operations of the egretea, kick out, keep out. The anatomy of egretea. So this is just a a way of enunciating how self-control works. First, I, that's me, that's you, we've been sitting on a throne. We've been controlling this life. You want to know why our ring is being controlled by the enemy? Is because we are in the improper position. This life is all about us. So if there was a throne in our life, if there was a king in our life, that king would be us. And as a result, we make all the decisions. We're in control of all our body parts, or so we would say. And as a result, we're actually not in control. When we sit on that throne, something else controls us. It's known as flesh, or the principle of the sin. So we are actually controlled by something else. And that's why Paul will say, what I want to do, I cannot do. You see, there's something else that's controlling, and it's called sin, the law of sin and death. We are under the thumb of something, and it is controlling our ring. So, what must happen? We must be dethroned. And that's what the cross and the prophet do. They get us, it's sort of like the removal of the... Uh, what's the super glue that we're like stuck there. We pick up and the, the, the throne is still attached to us. We can't get away from it until the cross. And the cross enables us. When we turn to Jesus, it detaches us. And Jesus says, deny self. Step down. Bend your knee and declare that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And give Jesus his rightful place in your body. So, first, I, self, must be controlled. The secret to self-control is that self first must be controlled. By who? By sin? No, by Jesus. So when self is now controlled and under the rulership of Jesus, subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the rule of the Spirit of God, and the authority of the word of the Scripture, then it is no longer I or self who lives or controls the body, but Christ who lives within the body. So we would call that spirit-controlled, Christ-controlled. However, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't stop there. In other words, you still are a very real player in this body. It's a funny thing, and it's sort of hard to articulate, but you're here in this body, and you're in the wrong position. But there is a proper position for you, and that is subservient, like the head butler in your body, bending your knee and submitting to your true master, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God. Whatever the Word of God says, whatever Jesus Christ says, you say, I agree, I will do. And he gives you power, gives you the spirit to be able to obey. And so, follow this. Your problem was that you were in control. Self in control. However, the fruit of the spirit is that you have self-control. Does that sound a little confusing? But follow. You were in control, and that was the principle of sin, but you were in control in an improper way. God wants to come in and be in control of your life. Now, he takes the preeminent position, the throne. 
You then are made the head butler. And this estate, known as the body, is put under your control. And God says, now that I'm in control, I'm going to command you how to live within this body. Let not sin therefore reign in this body. That you would obey it in the lust thereof. And you say, yes, sir. He says, I've given you authority over your body. You tell your sexuality what to do. You tell your appetite what to do. You tell your mind what to think on. You tell your tongue that it will only speak that which I speak. And that which is in accordance with what I'm speaking. You are in control, but not in control the way you think. You're under his control, and as a result, you are put in control. And one of the evidences of the Spirit of God in us is that now self is under our control, which is then under Christ's control. And as a result, that's why the prophet can say, pick it up. Pick up the axe head. You're like, I can't do anything. No, I've given you authority and power to do something. And that is to respond to the power that I've given, that I've demonstrated. I've done the work. You must take it. So it says, thusly, I is now in its proper position, crucified yet alive, denied and yet yielded, to behave as it ought. It is now able to exert the authority of Jesus Christ over the body, its impulses, its weaknesses, and its fleshly longings. Now, the final point. Self is now controlled by Jesus in order to control the body as it ought. You're supposed to be able to tell your body what to do. The problem is, your body's telling you what it's going to do. And the impulses of the flesh have been ruling you. But now, Jesus has moved in, cleared out the ring, and said, now I'm putting you over this, but you have my authority to do it. I will help you at every turn. You cannot even keep this ring, clean this ring, without me. So I am ever-present, I'm dwelling with you, but you must be in agreement with everything I'm doing. So when I say to do this, you do it. Pick up the accent. 1 Corinthians 9. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is egratume. That's the same word for self-control. Every man that strives for mastery is controlled in all things. He's controlled over every aspect of his life. In all things, it says. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air. For instance, he's talking about boxing here. And so, if the enemy is coming in this way, do you think he should swing his fist this way? No. He doesn't fight randomly. He's fighting in accordance with that alarm system within his soul. God says, eh, eh, this gets out. And we have ekreteia, the authority to boot it out. And then, eh, eh, this is trying to get in. We have the authority to keep it out. We have a new strength. The axe head floats. The prophet has come. Alas, master, we're missing something. He says, show me where it fell. Right there. Throws in the work of the cross and what happens, the impossible. And now that impossible life is made available to you. And he says, you see that? Yeah. Pick it up. Pick it up. How many of us have left it floating in the Jordan? We didn't know about it. Some of us have known about it and still haven't picked it up. Well, I say, may not one of us leave it floating today. God has done his work so that we would take it. But I keep under my body. That's 
poor grammar for us in America. What it means is I keep my body under. This is what Paul says. He does not just do things randomly, but he's actually keeping this body under what? Control. That's the concept. It's egratumai. And to bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He's basically saying, I don't want to be one of those that has a religion that is vain. I want to have this body under control. So therefore, every aspect of my body, in all things, I am seeking mastery. Seeking to be over it in the accordance with the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. My thought life, he says, think on these things. My words, speak these things. You know that Jesus only spoke that which his father was speaking? Only what his father was speaking. He had self-control. He had egretea. He demonstrated. He says, now if you are in me, you will demonstrate it. You will demonstrate that your tongue only speaks that which I speak. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Now, some of us could say, well, yeah, that'd be great, but I don't have the ability to do that. And Jesus points to the river Jordan, to the floating axe head, and says, what was that you were saying? He said, this stick won't cut wood. He said, yeah, you lost that axe head a long time ago, I know. You lost your strength, but I have come to bring that strength back to you. It's called redemption. It was the work of the cross. It's grace. And he has done it. He has made the impossible possible. He has made iron float. He has made our miserable lives that can't do anything right. Sin is ruling our bodies. And then he comes in and he says, let not sin rule any longer. We're like, how's that supposed to work? Because now I've given you that which you need. I've given you the equipment. All I have is a stick and it doesn't cut wood very well. Woe is me who can save me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Fully functional in the new strength. When Egritea gets its game on. The inner alarm is working. You know that you know that you're healthy when you're convicted? It's actually a sign of life. Don't try and run from it. It's like, oh, I'm so tired of having God correct me. God is disciplining those he loves. And the fact that you are alerted, the fact that you're sensitive to it is a wonderful sign of life. And so when engratea is functioning as it ought to, when self-control is as it ought, temperance is functioning, eh, you hear the alarm and you learn to respond to it instantaneously. If you ever hear, I used to have a, a, a drill growing up. My alarm would go off, I think it was 441. It'd go off and I hated the sound of it. And so it would go, and I'd go, Poof. And I would try and turn it off before it did it twice. Well, that's actually a spiritual principle. If you ever hear that alarm, you instantaneously respond to it. Instant obedience. Constantly examining motive, inspecting behavior, and evaluating the spiritual thermostat in your soul. If you're getting too hot towards something, and in undue passion and obsession towards something. If you're getting too cold towards the things of Christ, and you're growing weak in your affections. And immediately respond and correct. Number two, the soul is ready for response. So not only is your inner alarm working, but your soul has sword drawn. Its sword is drawn and ready to respond to any sign, no matter how small, of soul deterioration, moral lassitude, or the encroaching nearness of sinful pollutants. 
You do not passively deal with even a billboard as you're driving down the street. As men, our alarm needs to be functional. You're driving down the road. I know you didn't put that billboard there. You're not responsible for constructing it. You're not the one paying for that advertisement. However, you are responsible for keeping your ring. And you must have egletea. Do not be the victim. Uh, uh, You hear the alarm and you immediately turn away. You have the position, you have the strength to do it. You cannot for one moment turn it over in your mind. Do not play the enemy's game. Do not be the victim, but be in the victor. Number three, the authoritative position is recognized. You see, if you don't know that you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and you don't know his position, by the way, students, what's your position? And where is Christ seated? He's at the right hand of the Father. What's under his feet? So if all things are under his feet, and you're in him, when you pray in the name of Jesus, you are praying with all authority. So these little pesky flies known as temptation, they actually do not have authority over you who are in Christ. So therefore you must know the position you have and exert it. You must heed the alarm. You must be quick and decisive with sword ready. And then you must wield that sword with authority. You are not just hoping to fight off the enemy. You know the enemy has no power over you. You know it. So when Paul says, let not sin, therefore reign in this mortal body. You know the authority you have. You know that you can let not. You actually can Perform that which God has commissioned you to perform. That accent is floating. Grab it. So the authoritative position is recognized. The soul knows its authority. And so when the invader comes, it knows its position in Christ. It exerts the presidential authority. It wields the governmental mandate to spiritually take out that which threatens the Christ life forming in the soul. Testing your personal egretea. Are you ready to defend the body of Christ? This is what we're defending. First, the body of Christ is an individual level. Then the body of Christ in a corporate level. You see, most of us, our alarm systems aren't even working properly for our individual life or our marriages or for our families. You know, if something begins to infect your marriage, it should be immediate. It's the same thing, same spiritual principle. How about your children? Have you ever had it as a parent where you begin to realize your child has been exposed to something you wish they hadn't been exposed to? I mean, uh, uh, it goes off. Well, what do you do? Just go, well, it's too bad we live in a depraved world. You fight. You fight for these children. We cannot be passive in this battle. How about the church? If we begin to see any infringement upon the body of Christ, uh, uh, the alarm goes off. Are you ready to defend the body of Christ? What makes you ready to defend the body of Christ? You learn how to defend your own body. If you're not protecting your own thought life, your own heart, your own sexuality, you think you're ready to defend the body of Christ? First things first, get the axe head on your own personal stick, on your own life. Start wielding it. Prove the power of the gospel in your life, and then you'll be ready for marriage. And then you'll be ready for a family. And then you'll be ready to lead the church of Jesus Christ. First things first. If your tongue is unhealthy today, make it right. Go to Jesus on that point. No more brackish waters. No more fruit that is 
moldy. We want to see the life of Jesus coming forth. How egretea is measured by how quick you notice the invader is your spiritual alarm working. I remember when I was at missionary school, this one teacher said, you know that you can measure humility? I was saying, what? What a strange statement. He said, humility is measured by, from the moment you realize that you've been proud to the moment when you make it right. The clock starts ticking. When you know you're wrong, you know you need to make something right, how long of a passage of time do you have? He said, that's humility. I've had that in my head for so many years. I've had the funniest moments with Leslie where we got a little argument brewing. And, you know, my tone isn't very healthy. And then I have that thought go into my head. And so in the middle of a conversation, I'm like, I just want you to know that I'm really sorry. That was a wrong tone. And it's like throws off the whole equilibrium of a good argument. (laughs) Are we willing to do it immediately? You know how hard that is? When your pride is at stake to do something immediately, most of us like to allow it to sit and stew for a couple days. And then we'll come back and say, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, hard it is to do it in the moment. Egretea is for the moment. Don't just let the axe head sit there for a couple days and take a vacation because, oh, I can't cut any wood right now. I, I don't have the ability to do it. I don't have an axe head. You know it's there. You go and get that axe head and start chopping wood right now. It's instant obedience. How quick you notice the invader. And by how quick you exert your position in Christ and make right what the enemy is attempting to make wrong. Are you strong to respond quickly and decisively. The flesh bait. What are our reasons for not doing it quickly? Oh, we should give it another look. I'm not exactly sure what I saw on that billboard. I think I need to clarify if I should look at it or not. Give it another look. That's the voice that comes in. Come on, just one more look. You probably just need to clarify a few things. Give it a little longer. When you are in a cycle of addiction, What the enemy is always saying, come on, you're already sinning. You might as well extend this a little. The the logic is really interesting when we are in that stupefied, inebriated state of sin. And these things actually make sense to us in those moments. When we're outside of those moments, we look back at ourselves and go, you idiot. However, if you recognize what they are and you recognize how the enemy works and you recognize your authority that you have in Jesus Christ, you do not give way to that for one moment. You deserve this. Hmm. That's an unhealthy thought. God knows you need a little break. God will forgive this. Isn't how the funny? The only time the enemy mentions forgiveness is when it has to do with compromise and sin. That's not how the things in the kingdom of heaven work. We don't sin knowing God will forgive. We tremble at the realities of what God gave up to forgive us. And that we'd be willing to walk away from everything. We'd be willing, as Paul, to never eat meat again for the rest of our life if necessary, if it caused even one person to stumble. Let alone our own soul. Do we have a hatred for sin? This ring has been cleaned out by the precious blood of Jesus. And how dare we? even for one moment, allow the enemy to trespass and to get even an inch of glory out of this life that was saved by Jesus. The sentinel's ready response to every bait of darkness. So there you are. 
You stand in the midst of this ring and you are ready to bring glory to Jesus Christ. If he says speak, you speak. If he says be silent, you're silent. If anything tries to encroach upon this ring, there is a readiness, there's a watchfulness. It is an evidence of the Spirit of God within you. So what is the sentinels, the watchmen, the the bodyguards' response? No. The enemy tries to come in. No. 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 We say yes to one. And that is to Jesus Christ. Anything else that tries to impair, impede, undermine the sanctity and the sacredness of this environment, we have a ready response. No. It's a drawn sword, by the way. I know it's very impressive. You stick it in his his throat. No. Out. Nope. Nope. Out. Oh, no. 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 No, no, no. Well, the enemy's pretty creative. When axe heads go flying... A prophet and a little wood are needed. If your axe heads have been flying about, I have a solution for you. It's not something I came up with. It's something Jesus did. It's the cross. You see, that prophet who had no guile in his mouth, there was no sin in him, lived the life that we couldn't live. And he lived it for us. He became sin and the punishment of sin in our place, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if we turn to him and say, I can't, he says, I can, and I have already accomplished it. Everything that is needed, it is not a past tense, I'm sorry, it is past tense, it's not a present tense or a future tense reality to see this iron float. It's a past tense reality. When, when did that iron float? Was that now or in the future? That's already happened. The iron is floating. It's been accomplished. And if you're willing to accept the invitation when God says, see that axe head floating? You say, that's impossible for an axe head to float. I made it float. You did? And I did it for you. For me? You mean for other people, the good ones, the ones that don't have axe heads fly off. No. No, for those whose axe heads fly off. Which, by the way, is everyone. We all need to have our axes repaired. We all need to be redeemed, every single one of us. But until we recognize our need, we will not go to the prophet and say, Alas, Master, I have a problem. I have a problem with sin. I have a problem with self-centeredness. I have a problem, and I cannot cure myself. Alas, Master, And he says, I have done it for you. Pick it up. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Look at that last line. So he reached out his hand and took it. If I stuck $20 on the stage today and I said, it's yours. I made it very clear. I said, your first name. And I said, it's yours. And then you went out to lunch and ordered a meal. And then it came time to pay. And you look at your friend and say, yeah, could you cover this? I don't, I don't have anything. Your friend could say, didn't Eric give you $20? Yeah, sure, true. 
Didn't the axe head float? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Why don't you have it then? Well, I didn't know I was supposed to have it. I thought I was just supposed to esteem it. I was supposed to just know that it happened as a fact in history. So he reached out his hand and took it. Have you gone out of your way to say, God's made it float for me? I need that. And without it in your possession, it's useless. What is the good of knowing about the cross if you do not take the work of that cross unto your very life? To believe is more than just mental assent. It also means to reckon, which means to attribute it to your account. It's an accounting term. It means to say, if that was for me, then I consider it for me. That axe had floated for me. And then it also means presenting and yielding, which is to give this body to the, to the one who actually purchased it. It's like saying, this stick is useless without that. I need that. And it involves obeying, exerting the truth in your soul and saying, I'm supposed to reach out and actually grab what you've done. And now I have an instrument known as a human life yielded, responding, and it is now able to do in this world that which only God could do. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.